The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. So last week, Brad's sermon was entitled, The Beauty of the Cross. And this morning, if you haven't looked already on the back of the bulletin, the title for my sermon is, The Victory of the Cross. And this may all have you wondering, why are we talking so much about the cross? We're in John chapter 12. We're not in John 19, right? I mean, we're at the triumphal entry. Shouldn't we just be talking about donkeys and palm branches and and fanfare? What's all this talk about the cross? The reason we are talking so heavily about the cross is because in all we have seen Jesus do, and in all we have heard Jesus say, he has been casting the shadow of the cross over everything in John chapter 12. It's on his mind. It's in his actions. It's it's on his lips. And if we like stick ourselves into that setting, this had to be so confusing for the crowds. Like if we were there amongst the crowds, we're greeting Christ with fanfare, right? Like that's what they're doing. We saw that two weeks ago. They went out to him greeting him like you would greet a victorious king. They're, they're saying basically he's their savior. He's come to save them, be victorious over their enemies. In their mind, that meant he would kill their enemies. Yet through his actions... Jesus didn't raise himself up like the crowds did. He made himself lowly. Coming not on a war horse, but on a beast of of peace. The colt of a donkey. And we know, and he goes on to say, that he's not going to make peace by killing his enemies. No, he is going to bring peace through being killed by his enemies. The shadow of the cross looms large over what Christ does. And then last week we heard Jesus speak, and when he finally speaks in verse 23, he says that his hour has come. The hour for him to be glorified. We've heard that phrase all throughout this gospel, but up until this point, it's always been the hour is coming, the hour is coming, and now in John chapter 12, the hour's here, and the hour always refers to the hour of his death. That that hour has arrived for him to be glorified, for his goodness, his beauty, his greatness. That's what glory is. Beauty, goodness, greatness. We're in football season. People talking about the glory of the game. I have no idea who won anything yesterday except the Braves. They lost. But when we talk about the glory of the game, we mean that which makes it great, that which makes it good, that which makes it beautiful. And Jesus says that the hour has come, which we know means his death, but he says for his goodness, his greatness, and his beauty to be put on display. That's going to happen through him dying. He said that explicitly to us last week. He said that he will be like a grain of wheat that falls to the ground and dies. The shadow of the cross looms large over what Christ says. So this had to be so confusing for these crowds. I mean, to them, a cross was not victorious. And a cross was definitely not glorious. Yet Christ was calling them to follow him to the cross. That's what happened at the end of last week's passage as Brad called all of us. Christ, through Brad, called all of us to follow Christ to the cross. 
If you look back at verse 26, that's what he says. Follow me. He's headed one place. He's He's calling these people and he's calling us to believe the exact opposite of our instincts. That the way to life is through death. For him, death through a cross, he will rise to new life. For us, death to self, we will have new life in him. Is that not what he said in verse 25? Whoever loves his life will lose it. You try to hang on to your life, you try to keep it for yourself, you're going to lose it. But if you hate your life, in other words, if it looks like you hate your life to the rest of the world, because you give it away to Christ. If you do that, you will actually keep, gain, real, true life. He's calling these people, he's calling us to life through death through the cross. He's calling us to do the opposite of what our instincts naturally are. That's a hard pill to swallow. Is it not? Like, and not just for these people in the text who were expecting a savior who was going to be king and vanquish their enemies. It's not just a hard pill for them to get all of that turned on its head. This is a hard pill for us to swallow. Most of us operate the same way these people do naturally. Life that is glorious is on an upward trend. Life that's victorious is on an upward trend. And Christ takes all of that and flips it upside down. This is not a hard pill to swallow. Do do we trust Christ as he calls us to the cross? To die to ourselves and live for him. We heard the beauty, the beauty of the cross, the beauty of that call clearly proclaimed to us last week. And I'm willing to bet that in this context, sitting inside of Shades Valley Community Church, when you hear the beautiful call to the cross, I'm willing to bet for most of you that your heart does what mine did. Last week, it agreed. Yes! That's that's beautiful. Dying to self, taking up my cross, living for Christ, beautiful. My heart agreed and my heart sang. But if we're honest for just a minute, if if we're honest in the safety of this place, dying to self, taking up our cross, the beauty of all of it, that's something that's easy to talk about. It is much harder. It's impossible for us in and of ourselves to live out. It's easy. It's easy for me to agree that the cross is beautiful until it's my blood being splattered on the wood. It's easy to agree that death to self is beautiful until I actually have to deny myself. That following Jesus is beautiful until it actually costs me something. When I actually have to deny myself and take up my my cross. When that happens for us, in that moment do we believe that the cross is beautiful. No matter how much we talk about the beauty of the cross, I don't think that taking it up is easy. It wasn't easy for Jesus. I mean, we all agree, Christ 
affirms the beauty of the cross. It's his hour for him to be glorified, display his beauty. And this is not easy for him. Look at the first verse of our passage today. Jesus' opening words in verse 27. Now. You're going to see that word over and over again throughout this passage. It's always referring to the fact that his hour has arrived. Now that the hour is here, now that I'm marching straight to the cross, now that I'm headed towards death in a tomb, now is my soul troubled. This this word used to describe a, a storm rolling in over waters. There's something stirring deep within him, troubled, being stirred up, churning. There's turmoil. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. Hour of his death has arrived. The events are in motion. A few short days. It's all going to be complete. And what's the response of the soul of our Savior? He's troubled. There's a storm brewing in his soul. There's a storm brewing to, to the point that he even poses a hypothetical question. My soul's troubled to the point, should I pray, Father, save me from this hour? We've read a prayer of Christ that sounds similar to that, probably. As he draws closer and closer to the cross, you won't find it in the Gospel of John, but you'll find it in others. As he draws closer and closer to the cross, he spends a lot of time in prayer. And as he's with his disciples in a garden called Gethsemane, he cries out to his father in Luke chapter 22 and verse 42, Father, if it be possible, let this cup, this hour, this time, this event, let this cup pass from me. Does it not sound like this? Father, save me from this hour. This is not easy for Jesus. Even though he knows that the beauty, the glory of his Father will be put on display through the cross. He knows that. Look, look at verse 27 again. Let's keep going. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. What purpose? Father, glorify your name. Sounds like the rest of that prayer we know from Luke chapter 22, doesn't it? Lord, if it be possible, let this cup pass for me, yet not as I will, but, but as you will. What shall I pray? Father, save me from this hour. No, this, this hour, this is the purpose. This is the reason that I'm here. That's why I came. The whole born in the manger, angels in the sky, singing glory to God in the highest, peace on earth, good will towards men, glory, glitter, falling from the sky. All of that, all the miracles, my entire life, my childhood, 30 years of not being known by anybody, sweeping up sawdust in a carpenter shop, and then this brief time of ministry going about preaching and, and healing, all of it has led to this hour. It culminates here. For this purpose I came. Do your will, Father, to glorify your name. And this is how Jesus taught us to pray, Father. Hallowed be your name. Your will be done. It's how he prays. Jesus says, I'm not ultimately going to pray to be saved from this hour. This hour is why I'm here. He prays for the Father to put his beauty on display. Glorify himself. 
Christ knows. He knows that through the darkness of the cross, the glory of God will shine beautifully bright. He knows that. So why is his soul troubled? What? Why is this not easy for Jesus? We've got to see that this morning. We've got to see three things. One, why taking up the cross was not easy for Christ. We've got to see that because in doing so, that's going to take us to number two, we'll see why taking up the cross is not easy for us. And third, I want us to see what Christ has done to make us victorious. What he's done, even though taking up the cross isn't easy for us, it's impossible for us, he's, he's done something through the cross to empower our taking up the cross. I want us to see that. That's how we live day by day. We've got to live on the power that he provides. Otherwise, we're all lost. I believe that this is what Jesus wants us to see. He wants us to see his victory, even though it was hard for him, because his victory guarantees our victory. I believe that's what he wants us to see because it's what he wants the crowd to see. He says that pretty explicitly, verses 28 to 30. Jesus prays, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. This only happened three times in Jesus' ministry. Baptism, Mount of Transfiguration, and right here. Voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there heard it, said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Christ's soul may be troubled, but but it's not because he has lost confidence that God's going to be glorified through the cross. It's not that he's lost confidence that this is his purpose that he's arrived at. No, no, he knows this is the entire reason he, he came. He knows his aim, and he knows that he's going to accomplish it. He doesn't need a reassuring voice from heaven. Who does? The crowd. This, this crowd who couldn't possibly see how a cross would be glorious. This crowd who couldn't possibly see how a cross would be victorious. The voice of God declares it will be both. Do you catch that in his words? In his words, God says, God the Father says, I have glorified my name and I will glorify it again. I have glorified my name. In other words, through the entire life of Jesus, God has been at work glorifying his name. We've seen that over and over and over and over again throughout the Gospel of John, that Jesus does all that he does for the glory of the Father's name. That he doesn't do anything apart from the Father. He doesn't speak anything apart from the Father. He works in perfect concert with his Father for his Father's glory. It's his desire. Through his whole life, the Father has been at work showing his beauty, his goodness, his greatness. And now, the Father says, I will glorify my name again through what's coming. Christ's death, his resurrection, exaltation. Through the cross, goodness, greatness, the beauty of God will be put on display. The cross will be glorious. And 
in God's words, he guaranteed it will also be victorious. Did you catch that in the verb tenses? God says, I have glorified my name, and I will, I will glorify. Not, I tried to in the past, and now I might get it done in the future. No, I have, and I will, guaranteed victory. These words are for the people. They're for us. We need to see that through the cross, victory is guaranteed. Christ's victory is guaranteed. Therefore, our victory is guaranteed. This is what Jesus wants us to see. So now, that naturally leads us to the question, what victory? If Christ is going to be victorious through the cross, it's guaranteed, awesome, victorious at what? What, What's he going to, to accomplish? And Jesus unfolds that for us in verses 31 to 32. Look at it with me. These are Jesus' words. He says, now. See that word again? Here. The hour. Through the cross. Now is the judgment of this world. Now. This hour. Right now. Through the cross. Will the ruler of this world be cast out? And I, when I am lifted up, another way of talking about his hour, death on the cross, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Jesus points to victory in three things. Victory over the world, victory over Satan, and victory in salvation. It's a trifold victory. And this, uh, this, this trifold victory, it reveals to us why taking up the cross wasn't easy for Christ. Like if we just look at these things as, as a whole, I think it presents to us why it wasn't easy for Christ, why his soul was troubled, why it was hard for him to take up the cross. Because when we look at these things as a whole, what we see is that on the cross, Christ is taking on the judgment that the world deserved for sin. And that judgment was death. He took on Satan, who Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14 says Satan holds the power of death. He took on the judgment of the world, the death that it deserved. He took on Satan, who held the power of death. He took on our sin, our death, and he defeated it so that he might draw us to himself to save us. That's the holistic picture of what's going on here. So when we look at that and ask, why was the cross not easy for Christ? Why did contemplating the cross trouble his soul? It's because at the cross, Christ, who knew no sin, knew that he would become sin for us. He, he who did not deserve death knew, Galatians 3.13, that he would become a curse for us. He who did not deserve the righteous wrath of God knew that the cup of the wrath of God would be poured out on him and he would drink down every last drop. Throughout the Old Testament, the wrath of God is often pictured as a cup to be poured out and to be drunk by those who deserve it justly. And this is what Christ is praying about in the garden that we mentioned earlier. When he prays, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. What's got him praying there, what's got his soul troubled, what's got him sweating drops 
drops of blood is not the fact that he's about to deal with some thorns and nails. What's got him dripping blood from his pores is the fact that he is staring down the full cup of the wrath of God and he's going to drink it down for every last one of us. This is why he's, he's troubled. The cross was not easy for Christ. Not because of a crown of thorns, but because he wore and bore our curse. That's what the thorns pointed to. Thorns are a symbol of the curse from Genesis chapter 3. It wasn't the crown of thorns, it was the curse. The cross was, was not easy for Christ, not because of nails, but because of wrath, just righteous, good wrath. The wrath of God is a good thing. A loving thing. If you punch my child, you will incur my wrath. Because I love my child. If I go, ha, hit him again. I am what we call a bad father. Report me to child services, please. God loves his creation. And through sin, we have inflicted, hit it with death, square on. And he promises to make his creation new, to remove all the effects of death and sin because he loves his creation. One problem, if he's going to remove the effects of sin and death, that means he's got to remove me too because I bring sin and death to this thing. I deserve the wrath of God because he loves cross was hard for Christ, not because of nails, but because of wrath, and not because of blood, but because of love. These are the reasons the cross was hard for Christ. He loves us. And he does, he does, he loves, loves us so much that he went to the cross to achieve victory over the world, victory over Satan, and victory in salvation. So we know what made that hard for him. But with him achieving all this victory, what therefore then makes it hard for us to take up our own cross? Like if Christ achieves victory over the world, over Satan, over yeah, in our salvation, then why is taking up our cross still a hard thing for us? What I want us to do is let's look at these three victories a little bit closer, one at a time. And I think that we will see why taking up our cross is not easy. But even better than that, I think that we'll see what Christ has done to make us victorious in taking up our cross. Let's take these one at a time. First, his victory over the world. His victory over the world. I think that taking up our cross is not easy because we do not have victory over the world. We don't act like it. We let the world have victory over my, uh, my eldest daughter, Kara, she's 10. She's growing up way too fast. For the longest time, she thought I was the most awesome person on the planet, and that is starting to break apart a little bit. Not because it's not true. <laughs> it's just not true for her right now. She'll come back around. But I have recently discovered that she no longer wants to hold my hand in public. I know, right? It's embarrassing. Whatever. Why? 
Why is it embarrassing to her to hold my hand in public? Because the world has victory over her. And she is hesitant to, to express love to me because of who might see, who might judge her. The world has victory. Those out there, whoever they are, have victory over her affections. And so they have victory over her actions. I think that taking up our cross is not easy because the world all too often has victory over our affections. And so it gets victory over our actions. We're hesitant to express that we love Christ because of who might see who might judge? Like, what will my coworkers think if they know I'm a believer? Like, will they assume, I mean, they also know I'm from Alabama, so are they going to assume I'm like backwards and outdated, I'm not forward thinking? Or what about my family? What will my family say if I don't follow the American dream? But I go where I believe that Christ is calling me to go, even if it is, is risky, even if it means I climb down the corporate ladder, not up it. What will people think if I, uh, if I take Christ's hand and follow where he leads, especially if that's to somewhere the world considers shameful or humiliating, somewhere like the cross? think that taking up our cross is not easy for us. It's actually impossible for us because the world has victory over our affections. We see that in Luke chapter 18, don't we, with this guy who's rich and comes to Christ and wants to know what he can do in order to have eternal life. Jesus tells him to follow the commandments. He's like, check. So Jesus says, sell all you have, go away, follow me. He can't do it. Why? Because his riches and possessions control his affections, which dictate his actions. So he cannot deny himself and take up his cross. It's hard. Jesus says it's impossible. It's impossible for us. But it is not impossible for Christ. In order for us to have victory over the world, Christ must do something. Christ has got to do something to give us victory. And the good news of the gospel is that he has. Look at verse 31. Again, Jesus says, now, right now is the judgment of this world. Now, in this hour, when I am being lifted up, now on the cross, judgment of the world is happening. In that moment, the world thinks that it is judging Christ. Finding him guilty. But in reality, it's the other way around. The world is being found guilty. Guilty of what? Guilty of rejecting God. There he hangs on a tree because of their rejection of him. The world is, is guilty at the cross. Verdict rendered through the cross. Christ judged the world through the cross he was sealing his victory over the world 
The same thing happens with us now. Just like the world rejected Christ, the world rejects his followers. Jesus said that they would do that. If they rejected me, they will also reject you. They will also judge you. And, and all they do, when the world rejects you, all it does is prove the justice of the judgment that awaits them. In other words, in other words, in the very moment where you feel judged by the world, ridiculed, afflicted, persecuted, in that very moment, you are seeing a confirmation that Christ's judgment has fallen on the world. Do you see how that works? In the very moment the world thought it judged Christ, they proved their own guilt. You've been united to Christ. You're an ambassador of Christ. Jesus says in Matthew 25, anytime anybody does something to the least of these, my brothers, that's you who are in Christ, they do it unto him. So now when they reject you and they judge you, it's the same situation. And they're just proving their own guilt. When, when you are rejected, you are seeing the words of Jesus in John chapter 16 and verse 33 come to life before your eyes. He says, in this world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Like, yeah, they're going to ridicule you. You'll have tribulation. But they're already... I've overcome them. This is how Christ does the impossible in us to make us victorious. Through, try and flesh it out. Through the light of the cross, we see that He indeed has victory over the world. Therefore, the world cannot have victory over us. No matter what they do to us, even if they nail us to a cross like they did to him, we win. The world is judged. Do you see how that, that provides power to take up your cross and follow after Christ? Not in your own power, but in the power that God provides. He's been victorious over the world. It cannot judge you. Even when it tries, it judges itself. That provides power. We see the victory of Christ over the world. Second, second, let's look at the victory, at Christ's victory over Satan. In order to see both why it's hard for us to take up our cross and then how Christ provides victory in the midst of that, second, let's see Christ's victory over Satan. I think, I think that taking up our cross is not easy for us because we do not have victory over Satan, or we don't see that we do, but we let Satan have victory over us. Same thing as with the world, but a little different. I think this is one of the reasons we struggle to deny ourselves and take up our cross, because we let Satan have victory over us. One of the things that's uh, nice about having small children is that the smaller they are, the easier they are to contain. Um, there was much mourning and weeping and gnashing of teeth at my house over the weekend because Asher has learned, it's my 14-month-old, he has learned how to climb onto the dining room bench and up onto the table. Lots of weeping because the table 
used to be the safe zone. Like you could put anything there that you didn't want destroyed or eaten. No longer. Nothing is sacred or safe. And we find ourselves longing for the days when we could take those benches and use them literally to fence him in. We, we, we called it baby prison. Our children, our other children referred to it as baby prison. We're horrible parents, people. Like, this is real. I'm not making this up. This isn't like preacher exaggeration. We'd pin him into a corner with these benches. Baby prison. We were rulers of the house. And he was trapped. Powerless to escape. In verse 31, Satan is called the ruler of this world. He's called that in multiple places throughout Scripture. And one of the reasons that he's called the ruler of this world has to be that he puts so many of us in a prison of sin. He's got us trapped. And we are powerless to escape. So many of us, isn't like, do you do you feel this? There's, there's some sin, there's some pattern of, of sin, some some lie, some deceit, something that has a hold on you. No matter how much you try to convince yourself that you have a hold on it, it's got a hold on you, and you're 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 in a prison and you cannot see your way to be free. Look at real specific, real quick. I think that one of the greatest prisons that Satan has constructed and uses to cripple believers from taking up their cross is sexual sin. The stats concerning pornography in the midst of our culture do do not lie. And it's no longer just like you can't be like, oh, this is just a man problem. No, it's not. It's an everybody problem. It's such an epidemic that there are secular debates, non-believing people having secular debates on whether or not a public health crisis should be declared. And the numbers don't change inside or outside the church. I think that Satan is using sexual sin to strangle us. I think this is why so many of us feel like we cannot deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow after Christ. We're we're disqualified from service. We can't teach. We can't lead. We can't help anyone else because we are caught in a prison that nobody else knows about, and we dare not say anything. Satan is suffocating the saints. He's a liar and a murderer lies to us that that sin is not a big deal and that it can even be life-giving and he uses it to lure us in and then to kill us and bring about death. Death in our relationships, death to your emotions and what you can feel, death to your soul forever if he can. He wants your soul to suffocate under guilt and shame forever. I think that taking up our cross is not easy for us, actually impossible, it's impossible for us because we let Satan have victory over us. Christ must do something about this. 
Christ must make us victorious over Satan. And the good news of the gospel is that he has. Look at the second part of verse 31 again. Jesus says, now, now, now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Now, in this hour when Christ is lifted up, now on the cross Satan is being cast out. In other words, no longer can he be ruler of this world. He's cast out. Not that he doesn't have influence, not that he doesn't roam around like a roaring lion seeking those whom he may devour, but his power to bring permanent death to you is broken. The only tools he's ever had by which to bring death to your soul have been taken from him and nailed to the cross. The only two tools he had was your sin taken from him, nailed to the cross, and the death that your sin deserved. Hebrews 2 and verse 14 says that he has the power of death. That was taken from him and nailed to the cross. Let me read you Hebrews 2, 14. It tells us that through Jesus' death, he destroyed the one who had the power of death. That is the devil. Satan's been cast out. He doesn't get to rule over you anymore. Christ has been victorious over Satan. And you might be thinking, like you hear that, if you find yourself caught in a web, a prison of sin, you might be like, that sounds great, Jonathan, I've heard that before, but I still don't see how that provides me with the power to take up my cross and follow Jesus. I still feel stuck. I, guess I, I still feel stuck in my prison. Of, I'm, I'm like your son, John. I'm like Asher. I've got no power to, to climb out of this prison, even if the prison guard has been defeated. Like even if my other children rebelled and tied Holly and I up, Asher's still stuck. He can't, he can't get out. And so, so you're like, it's great that Jesus has vanquished Satan Victory over him, but I still feel stuck in my cell, personal hell right here. If that's you, stay with me. Stay with me because it's in the third thing. It's in number three that I think we see the cross doesn't just give us victory over Satan, but it gives us victory in salvation. It's the third thing. Through the cross, we're going to see Jesus' victory in salvation. I think that taking up our cross happens. Like the impossible becomes possible. I think it happens when we see the Savior of our salvation and set our eyes there. Scripture has a lot to say about where you set your gaze. You're called by Paul in Colossians chapter 3 to fix your eyes. To fix your eyes on, on that which is from above. We're told to, in Philippians to, to set our sight and our life on, on the goal and the prize for which God has called us heavenward in Christ Jesus. I think Denying yourself and taking up your cross happens. It's made possible when we set our eyes on the Savior of our salvation. I'll show you what I mean. Look at verse 32. Jesus says, And I 
when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people. That's a little bit more of a translation than what's actually here in the Greek. In the Greek, it's just the word all. Tell you why that's important later. I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Christ speaks about his death on the cross and he says, Here's the victory that I'll have victory in salvation. I will draw. Not I might. Not, not maybe. No, I will. You're like Jonathan. How can he say he will draw all people to himself? Not all people are drawn to Christ. Yes, that is true. Not every individual without exception is drawn to Christ. But all peoples without distinction are drawn to Christ. In other words, people from every tribe, every nation, every tongue are drawn to Christ. Jesus doesn't just draw Jews to himself. He doesn't just draw Americans or Africans or women or men or children or a Adults, he draws from all. I think that's the point because everything that we have read, everything that Jesus has been saying was all sparked by verse 21 that we went over last week. And in verse 21, some Gentiles come seeking Jesus and ask, can we see Jesus? And I think we finally get to Jesus' ultimate answer that all people, Jew, Gentile like people from every tribe, every nation, every tongue will see him when he is lifted up. At that time, he will draw all his people He's talked about that back in John chapter 5 and John chapter 6 and in John chapter 10. He's talked about how the Father has given him his people, his sheep, and they will all infallibly be drawn to him from every people group, from the flock here in Israel and from other flocks around the world. He's got sheep and he's going to draw them all to himself. Those who see him, when they see the beauty of his cross, they will come to him through the victory of the cross. This is how Christ does the impossible to make us victorious. Through the light of the cross, we see not only that he has victory over the world, victory over Satan, but we see his beauty. Through the light of the cross, we see his goodness, his greatness. Through the light of the cross, we see our salvation. It's him, and we want him. We're drawn to him by his beauty, his goodness, his greatness, his glory. This is how you leave behind the prison of sin. Not not in your own power, but in the power that Christ provides by drawing you to something more satisfying than sin. Drawing you to himself. I, I collect pipes that offend some, not like crack glass pipes. I just said crack in a sermon. I'm sorry. <laughs> it happens, people. Welcome to Shades Valley where we talk about cocaine and stuff. If any of your kids ask you at home later, what's cocaine? I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry. I collect pipes, tobacco pipes. It's Tolkien's fault. I really don't smoke them, though. And the reason I don't, do any of you know why? Have I told any of you why? Some of you know. Some of you see my collection. It's what I buy when I travel places. 
I don't smoke them because if I do, my wife won't kiss me. Guaranteed for 48 hours, no smooching whatsoever. And so I choose that which is more satisfying. Her lips empower me to say no to drugs. Quote your pastor on that one. There is no greater satisfaction than the glory of Christ. Your heart was made for it. When you find satisfaction in the glory of a sunset, it's because you were really made for the one who painted it. When you find satisfaction in the glory of the Grand Canyon, it's because you were made for the one who dug it. When you find satisfaction in a kiss, it's because you were made for the glory of the one who thought of it. There is no greater satisfaction than the glory of Christ. It draws us out of sin. A, a, less, a lesser pleasure, it draws us out of sin in the full salvation. His glory, when we set our eyes on it and we see it in all of its beauty, His glory, His power makes us victorious. Do you see Him? His victory over the world, His victory over Satan, and His victory in salvation. The people in John 12 don't see it. They don't see it. Let's close with verses 34 to 36. So the crowd answered Him, We've heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? They understand two things from Jesus' words understand that he's claiming to be the Messiah and they understand that he is saying that he is going to die. And that doesn't make any sense to them whatsoever. Because from what they understand of the Old Testament, the Messiah lasts forever. He's eternal. That is correct. They're just missing a piece. So they ask him, who is this Son of Man? They're not asking can you identify for us who the Son of Man is. They're asking what is this kind of Son of Man that you're describing to us? Who, who is this kind of Savior? What we've read and what we know is a Messiah who's eternal. Yet you're saying you're the Messiah and that you will die. What, what kind of Son of Man is, is that? And Jesus points to himself as the kind of Messiah he's talking about. Throughout this whole chapter, through what he's done, through what he said, he has been shining forth the light of the Messiah that he is. That's what he says in verse 35. The light is among you a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Jesus says, I'm here. I've been shining forth the light of the Messiah that I am, the only Messiah who comes humbly to bring peace with God by dying on a cross, making that cross itself beautiful and securing victory over the world, over Satan, and in your salvation. Walk in that light. Believe in that light, in that truth, lest the darkness overtake you. He means both eternally and immediately. Walk in the light of who I am. 
lest the darkness overtake you eternally and eternally you be separate. You don't believe in me, you'll be separated from my light for eternity. And he also means immediately, the darkness that's coming immediately, he says he's about to be taken from them. The darkness that's coming is the cross. And he says, if you don't walk in the light of the kind of Messiah I am, the Messiah who humbles himself to death for you, for victory for you, if you don't see that and walk in that light, the cross will be darkness to you. You won't understand it. You won't understand what I'm doing. You've got to walk in the light to be a son of light, to understand the kind of Messiah I am. That was true for them, and the same is true for us. Without the light of Christ, we will experience darkness, both eternally and immediately. Without putting our faith in Christ, there is no victory for us over the world, over Satan, or in salvation. Our separation from the light and the glory of Christ forever. Darkness. And shades for those of us who are believers, who have embraced Jesus, I want to urge you with this one final thing. If we don't walk in the light of Christ now, right now, daily, then we will still experience darkness overtaking us in the immediate. In other words, just like when the cross came and the disciples were confused, when crosses come into our life, when we experience loss or suffering or hardship, when our family disowns us, or our workplace fires us, when there's a death, when there's pain, when we find ourselves lost in darkness, will we find ourselves lost in darkness in those moments? Where are you, Jesus? What, what kind of Savior would let this happen? But if we will walk in the light of the kind of Savior that He is. A Savior who walks the way of the cross. If we will be sons and daughters of light who take up our cross and follow after Jesus, then we will be empowered by His victory over the world, over Satan, and in our salvation. That is the victory of the cross, and it is ours in Christ. Amen.